0: Okay, well if you guys want to open up your Bibles to 1st Timothy, we will surprisingly be there this week on Thursday. And we will be just picking up at the very next verse, and this week we will be going exactly one verse deep into 1st Timothy. So we'll make one more step in the right direction towards the end of the book. Uh, But as you're going to see, we're going to lay down some foundations, which are going to become very relevant for really the next six verses as we try to navigate a rather thorny section of text that uh, if you just Google it, you will find out very quickly that this is far from unanimous in terms of interpretation. So uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, and I will just read verse 8 we'll be talking about that broader context. I desire then that in all places the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Let me just say a word of prayer and then we'll get into our study. Father, we thank you for this time where we can gather under the ministry of your word uh, to be edified, uh, encouraged, uh, and uh, ultimately Lord, refined by your word. We confess often that uh, we bring our own Uh, evaluations to your text Uh, we often hold it in in judgment and uh, with modern eyes we look back thousands of years ago and uh, think about how some things could have been said differently and lord we recognize that that is going to be a strong temptation as we go through the next section of texts we just pray for grace as we uh, try to be in submission to your word uh, to listen carefully to it Um, and lord to call our own assumptions into question Uh, when evaluated according to your words. pray this in your name. Amen. So we have been, uh, in the course of time that we've been going through 1 Timothy, one of the things that I've been kind of trying to lay out for you guys is the carefulness in which Paul is making his argument. So uh, just a quick recap on that. Remember, Paul writes the letter because there's false teaching in the church. He writes the letter to Timothy. Who is, we're going to find out in a chapter or two is the elder of the church. He's the one who's in charge uh, uh, or responsible for the theological guardianship of the church and also for the preaching of sound doctrine and, and a whole host of things, even some things like holy living. So Timothy is the guy who's got to oversee that. You'll we'll notice also Timothy's not alone in this, but Paul writes to Timothy because he has a relationship with Timothy. And in some sense, he's charging Timothy specifically with these, these duties. In that process, one of the things that he establishes that Timothy is his pure child in faith. Timothy is his legitimate child uh, because Paul is uh, the father of Timothy spiritually, and Timothy is to be the one who is to beget more faithful spiritual children in his church ministry. The, the mission of a church is to build build the family of God, build the household of God, which is the church of God. These things are all linked together. And so Paul's very concerned, not from an organizational standpoint, that he's going to lose revenue, or not from a standpoint of he's worried about his reputation. His reputation is kind of trash uh, in in the ancient world. He's worried about the fact that there are people who he thinks Christ has died for that are at risk of being led astray by false teachers in the church. This is his concern. And so it is with that zeal that he writes. And in the course of his writing, he anchors his argument two different times in the gospel. First and foremost, he talks about Christ Jesus coming to save sinners. This is what's at stake if we pervert the teaching of Jesus and get stuck on these endless myths and genealogies and really these vain disputes that have nothing to do with building one another up in faith. And he uses himself as an example of how powerful the gospel is to save. And then in chapter 2, he turns now to the public worship of the church. And we've noticed over the last couple of weeks, the public worship of the church is not at all divorced from the theology which founded the church, right? The gospel is the foundation of why we pray and what worship is to look like in the gathered assembly. Now, it might not be clear, let's say right off the bat right now, as we've been reading through it, that it's obvious he's talking to the public worship of the church. It might seem like he's still talking to specific situations. But one of the things that happens at the beginning of chapter two is you'll notice that he begins to talk about this kind of corporate, uh, these things that you should do as a corporate gathering when you are all gathered together. So chapter two, verse one, he says, first of all, I, I urge that the supplications, prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth. Now, th- those verses don't scream, we're talking worship service right now. However, he, when he proceeds in his instructions, particularly as we get into verses 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, and 15, you're going to notice very quickly, he's, he's not talking about every single aspect in the life of the church. He's talking about When the church gathers together as a corporate union, what are the principles under which we gather? For instance, uh, verse 8, which we are reading this week, he says, I desire then that in every place men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Now, if you say that only men should ever pray in the full life of the church, you're going to find yourself on a theological island very quickly because no interpreter has ever held that in the history of the church. However, people have held and still do hold the position that the gathered worship service of the church is to be primarily led and orchestrated by men. Now, this is, this is why we think that these verses refer to the public worship of the church, not every single nuanced aspect in the life of the church. Are you following there? So, and what he's going to say next, which we'll talk about next week, is how women ought to dress. Now, he's going to talk about that in the context of, well, because they're going to be in the gathered assembly of the church, so they should, they should dress in a certain way. But he's not going to limit it there. Obviously, if that extends to, you know, you should have this conduct elsewhere as well. But the primary aim of his teaching here is, is the worship service of the gathered church. So it's, what's specified here is that kind of public worship gathering. And that's important for us to keep in mind, because when we get into some of these other verses later on, uh, it's going to be very tempting for us to either dismiss them outright because, well, for, for instance, we do allow women to, to teach uh, Bible studies in small groups sometimes and, and things like that, but but we don't, we don't allow them to preach on Sunday. Why is that? Well, because this text is not talking about every single thing that happens in the life of the church. It's talking about worship for the Lord on Sunday. And so we're going to be unpacking a bunch of hermeneutically thorny issues over the next couple of weeks. And so it's important for you to know on the front end that we have this kind of foundation in the fact that this is talking about the public gathering of the church. This is a historically... Viable and uh, in many senses, common interpretation, that what Paul is doing here is telling Timothy how the church ought to worship God. He does that first by anchoring worship as something that the church does to intercede as a congregation for its rulers, for its authorities. And then he's going to say that the foundation of the Christian worship and prayer is rooted in Christ and what he has done as our mediator, what he has done by his atoning work on the cross. And then he turns and he's going to say in verse 8, I desire then that in every place, in all churches in every, in every congregation, that the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Now, it won't take you long if you were to look at this text uh, and you were to pull a commentary off the shelf or you were to study this text deeply for you to come across a, a, a commentary or an interpreter who says something like, what this means is men and women, when they pray in church, they should have a certain uh, adornment and holiness to their conduct. And certainly, certainly that is true Christian teaching. However, this text doesn't say men and women when they pray should have this. It says when men pray, they should do it in this kind of way. So we we want to be careful not to just blanket statement onto the text things that the text itself isn't saying. And then we have to sit in the tension of, well, what is he, why is he saying only men should pray? And what does he mean by men should pray in this way in in every place? Now, these are the questions where we're really getting after the, the heart of what Paul is saying. And it's important that we don't just kind of sweep the uncomfortable parts under the rug and pretend like they don't exist and insert words into the text that we wish Paul did write. Because in a number of weeks, we're going to wish Paul didn't write some things a certain way that he did it because it sounds bad and we're not so sure what to do with it. And so it's important for us to, to just let Paul say what he says and then for us to ask the question, what does he mean by that? But not to insert things so that we don't ever have to ask the question, what's he going on about? So he says, I desire then that in every place men should pray. Now, he's already said that prayer should be made for all people. I urge that supplications and prayers and intercessions be made for all people. And at that point, when he first says it, he doesn't doesn't have anywhere in the text where it says men are the only ones doing this, right? Now he clarifies, verse 8, I desire them that in every place it's men who should be doing this. But we know in scripture that men are not the only ones who are allowed to pray. For instance, Hannah prays in the Old Testament. Uh, we have prayers for many Old Testament women who pray and intercede for their people on behalf of God. When he's talking about men praying, he's talking about prayer, not just as the act that we think about as praying, but we think about prayer as, in some sense, the worship of the church, mediating between the world and to God, communicating with God. So when that thing is happening, when the church is gathered, it's men who are running the show or in some sense orchestrating responsible for that prayer gathering of the church. When he says, I desire that in every place men should pray, lifting up holy hands, he does not mean, therefore, women should never pray. What he means is that when the church is gathering, it is men who are leading that prayer worship service. Okay? One of the reasons we can, we can anchor that is because in the very next verse, he's going to turn towards women and give them specific instructions. And while we can even extend the instructions he gives to women onto what, how men should conduct themselves, it's important for us to know he is addressing men and women separately in these verses. And what we are tempted to do often is flatline his teaching that what he says to men, he says to both men and women, and what he says to women, he says to both men and women. That's a danger that we're going to run into, but Paul is clearly addressing them differently in these verses. So what what does it mean that men should pray, particularly that they should do so lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling? Now to the men, he gives a specific instruction Pray with holy hands, without anger, and without quarreling. It is because when men are tempted to sin, they are tempted to sin by hypocrisy, uh, presenting themselves in in a more robust sense than they actually are, the temptation of men, uh, rooted in pride and rooted in selfish ambition. They are tempted to quarrel with one another and angrily hold grudges against one another, and to not resolve those things and to pray as though those things don't exist. These are specific sin temptations that men would face. This does not mean that women don't face these sin temptations but as a broad rule of thumb tendency it is more often the case that a man will try to hide sin and, pretend, and present outward to the world like they've got it all together particularly when it comes to religious matters. And if you want examples of this just think about pastors who have been for years living in sin and yet preaching faithful sermons and pretending like everything's okay. Uh, When he says men should lift up holy hands, what he means is their whole lives, their whole work, their whole being, their whole souls are to be wholly consecrated to God. This is how they should pray. They should not pray with unholy hands, with unclean hands offered to God. They should not bring unclean offerings to the Lord when they intercede on behalf of the people. Consider the teaching of the book of Leviticus, which teaches us how Israel ought to approach Yahweh in holiness, They have to approach him as a holy God because he is a holy God. And so they need to be holy in order to approach him. And there's all these things that they need to do to approach him as holy. And we get to the New Testament because we are so enamored with the blood of Christ being our sacrifice, which it is. We then begin to think that it's okay for me to live however I want, as licentious as I want, because Christ has forgiven me so I can pray to God in whatever state. All of that is true. And yet what God commends to Christian men when they go before the church to pray is to do so without hypocrisy, to do so in a way that offers their whole lives as holy before the Lord, to intercede on behalf of the people in that kind of way. In the same way that God can cast forgiveness upon David in the Old Testament for his sin and David can still pray to God, God can also hold the right to strike down Nadav and Habihu when they offer unclean offerings before him in worship because he's a holy God. And because their offerings are hypocritical and not clean, he could strike them dead. This is something God can do because he's holy. So it is here when Paul is saying the worship in the church ought to be conducted via prayer. It is the men who are to be tempted to do so in an unholy manner, in a, in a vain posturing manner. And we just heard this last Sunday about the Pharisee who goes in a vain, unholy manner before God and offers prayer. Paul's saying, don't do that. That is, that is not in place in the fellowship of the church. So men ought to do this with holy hands, which means if you if you want a really robust discussion on what this means, what he's talking about in uh, is the whole life, the whole of one's life. You can draw in your mind, Romans chapter 12, verse one, where Paul says, therefore present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Men praying with holy hands lifted up is, is akin to that. Their whole lives, Their whole work, their hands, who they are and what they do is consecrated to the Lord and offered up before him. That Monday through Saturday, their conduct reflects how they're going to pray on Sunday when the church gathers for worship. That all of who they are is worship to the Lord and so they can pray with clean hearts, blameless before him. Now suppose it is the case that we know men struggle with sin What I'm not saying here is that a a perfectly pure and spotless man must go before the congregation or else no one should offer prayer. But what he is saying is don't pray hypocritically, having sin baggage behind you and then going before the congregation in prayer. What you should do is reconcile before the Lord, confessing your sin and being reconciled to him and then go and pray. It's very similar to if you were to if you were to look at the very next instruction without anger or quarreling. Paul says elsewhere in the text If you have something against your brother, don't even go forward and give offerings to the Lord. Go and be reconciled with your brother first and then engage in worship with the Lord, right? You can't, you don't want to engage in worship in a hypocritical kind of way. Anger and quarreling. Think about how often it is the case where you might have an opportunity to to pray, to lead a group, to, to lead a group prayer, possibly to lead a teaching. For some of you who've been engaged in ministry for some time, think about how often it is the case Men in particular, where you have had something against a brother, you've not resolved it, kind of squish it down to the side, try to forget about it. And you lead the church or you lead that small group or you lead that other Christian in prayer as though nothing were wrong and you didn't have a quarrel. This is the kind of thing Paul is saying you should not do. Uh, You should first reconcile with other believers. If it's anger, if it's quarreling, put that to bed, be reconciled and pray out of a reconciled frame. Remember the problem on the ground, the false teachers are drumming up, quarreling, vain disputes, endless disputes about all kinds of things, not edifying to the church. So he's basically saying false teachers, by the way, they're disqualified from praying before the congregation. Timothy, you should not be a quarrelsome person. You should build others up in faith. And I demand actually that all men who are gonna lead the worship service to conduct themselves in this way. No quarreling, no anger, no foolish disputes. They're the kinds of people who their whole lives reflects the kind of prayer they're going to offer before the Lord. Just like the Levites in the Old Testament had to live lives different than the rest of Israel because they have to intercede between God and Israel. This is a little bit what it's like. This is a little bit what he's saying. The only difference is in the New Testament church, uh, this is required of every every man who is to be uh, called to the ministry, is called like a Levite in the Old Testament or like a prophet. They ought to be consecrated to the Lord, but their whole lives surrendered to him and out of that purity, out of that blamelessness to offer worship to the Lord. That's why the, the disqualification of a pastor from ministry, the disqualification of a leader from ministry is one of the most egregious sins does the most damage to the church ruins the reputation of Christ and, and often uh, causes so much damage is because it spits in the face of these clear instructions. So remember, this whole series in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy and Titus, we're talking about the pastoral letters. What does it mean to be a healthy church? Here's a clear lesson. To be a healthy church, the people who are leading the church, who are praying on behalf of the church, who are organizing the worship of the church, they ought to be the kind of people who follow the pattern of the Levitical priesthood. Holy, blameless, consecrated to the Lord. Not hypocritical. Not the kind of people who are different Monday through Friday than they are on Sunday. They're not faking it. Their whole lives are this. And that is a high calling. It is a really high calling. And it's, it's frankly only possible in the grace of Christ. If Christ does not extend his grace to us, to offer forgiveness, to offer restoration, to offer a hope that we can actually be better than we are currently, this is something that we have to work for, not something that is given to us as a grace gift for us to walk within. But because of Christ's sacrifice, it is out of that abundance and grace that men are called to live holy and blameless before the Lord so that they can intercede on behalf of their people, on behalf of the congregation. Now, I'm being very specific to talk to men tonight as I'm giving these instructions. That does not mean that there is nothing here to learn for women. All I'm trying to drum into you is that Paul is giving these instructions specifically to men because these are the sin temptations of men, specifically. As you'll see next week, uh, being someone who uh, embraces modesty is also something that men today could learn a lot from. But specifically, modesty is a different sin temptation for women than it is for men. It's a different kind of beast. And so it is here with anger and quarreling. Men have a propensity for that that women, frankly, don't. It's It's a different sin temptation. And this is rooted in an idea that goes really to the foundation of Scripture, that men and women are different, created differently before the Lord, by his good design, not in terms of value or worth or dignity, but different in terms of how they interact with one another and with the world. We mentioned this when we did our discipleship class on gender roles. You can, you can image God in one of two ways, either as a male or as a female, and there's no way to kind of blur the lines between those two to be some kind of neutral human before the Lord. If you're a woman, you can only ever engage before the Lord as a woman. There's no way around that. It's created you uniquely to do it that way, similarly to men which means it comes with its own set of sin tendencies it comes with its own set of strengths it comes with its own weaknesses and we should be aware of those things because one of the great dangers that the church today is at risk of is flattening everyone's sin into this kind of monolithic category that everyone will struggle with equally and then setting up the people who need to be most on guard against certain sins up for failure because they're not they've not been warned that that would be their particular sin problem if you don't warn men that they're going to struggle with anger and quarreling and you don't tell them it's going to look different than how women will quarrel with one another, then you set men up to fail or to justify their anger or quarreling. Or what happens today in the strong response to femininity or feminism in the world, there's this very toxic masculinity culture growing in which men feel justified in their anger, justified in their quarreling, and in many ways justified in their sin because there are people in the world who are saying, no, as a man, you are different. And what that means is your sin is justified. What the church needs to say is, no, as a man, you are different. It doesn't not justify your sin. It just means you be aware of your sin and aware of where your tendencies go. Mm-hmm. Similarly with women. When the church flattens men and women out and, and treat them as a monolithic group, uh, we really just open the door wide for the world to come in and say, actually, no, that's not true. Everyone knows it. And then give licensure to sin. And we know that that's not good. So Paul is treating men and women differently here, but with pastoral concern. He's doing it with a heart for the church. Now, there's one last thing uh, to mention here, and then I will uh, be done and we can go into some discussion. And that is to not get hung up on the the argument here uh, where he's he's speaking specifically to men. And then when we go next week and we start talking about women and modesty and and all the rest, that we forget that he's given a huge number of instructions to men. And later in the letter, he's going to do the same thing where he's going to turn and alternate between men and women and then to children and to widows and all the rest. And he's going to give specific instructions. One of the reasons we need to remember that is because uh, if you're married, you tend to see the sin tendencies of your spouse better than your own. Uh, If you've ever dated someone, you tend to see the sin tendencies of them more than your own. And what we are tempted to do is look across the aisle at what other people will struggle with and say, oh, I see that sin tendency all over the place. And we are blind to our own sin tendencies. So uh, in this week one of the things we need to dwell upon and really spend some time reflecting on is this idea that men will struggle with this prideful hypocrisy, this tendency to not want to have their whole lives consecrated to God and to fake it as though it is in a, in a totally different way than women will. When Paul gives this specific instruction to lift up holy hands, he does so because it's a specific sin tendency for men not to. And that does not mean that does not mean that women don't struggle with posturing before others and pretending like they have everything together. But it, what it does mean is that men just tend to have a better capacity to shut down areas of their life and pretend like they don't exist than women do. I have been uh, married to Tara for a number of years now, and whereas she has a hard time dropping things and pivoting to something else, all of, all of her life, all aspects of her life kind of blur together into one sphere, one scope. So if she's upset in one area, it kind of bleeds in all the others, and similarly, and if she's happy in one area, it kind of affects everything else. I am not that way. And it's not just because I'm me and she's her, it's because I'm a guy and she's a girl. Men can tend to switch one area of their life off, and then just turn it on somewhere else, almost like they can segment their lives. And the danger with that is if you're struggling massively with sin in a certain area and failure, you think, oh, I can just shut that down and be holy on Sunday. I can just shut that down and be theological when I'm around <clears throat> friends. I can just shut that down and be a wholly different person at the workplace than I am at home or as I am with my church community. It's one of the reasons Paul has to give this as a specific instruction. Because this is the kind of tendency that male disposition is prone towards, this, this shutting down areas of life. If you're massively failing in one area, you think that's fine because I'm winning in these other areas and, I, and I'm good to go women do struggle with this kind of posturing but it, it hits different for a woman than it would for a man and so one of the things particularly I think about us as a young church and many of you men being young men one of the things that you need to recognize is that sin tendency in yourself and to just for a moment think about all the ways in which that could or even now does manifest in your life and recognize that that is something you need to war against in confession in accountability being with integrity before the Lord in all things. To not, to not embrace the tendency to shut down over here where you're, let's say, failing morally in a massive way and then turn around and pretend like you can have theological discussion about God as though it's completely separated from one another. This is something that will eventually lead to the ability to do that better and better and thus always be in a stained position before the Lord, not being able to really ever pray in a pure kind of way. Paul says, don't do that. Pray before the Lord with a clean conscience, with holy hands uplifted before him. Now, this is the consistent teaching of the New Testament. And in many ways, it's the consistent teaching of Paul. So he's really drumming it up here, but I'm focusing on this verse. You know, there's probably 20 cross references we could go to where he says the same kind of thing. You are a new creation, put off the old, embrace the new, that kind of stuff. Pray out of this new creation frame. So this is consistent teaching. It's really just focused here, concentrated in one verse. And one of the reasons this is really important to get is because when we are offering prayers and intercessions for kings, for authorities, for rulers, out of the knowledge that Christ is mediator, we should do so recognizing that we should should never consider ourselves outside of the need of Christ's mediation. We are also those who need to be mediated for by Christ. And when we ask for Christ to intercede for kings and for ruling authorities because they might have sin tendencies— We should do so in some sense having first confessed our sin before we go before the Lord and pray for him to change the heart of someone else. Much like if you want someone to repent for a sin they've committed against you, you should first confess your own sin in this situation. You should first go to the Lord and confess your own bitterness and anger and frustration before you pray for him to change their heart. This is the kind of thing that he's encouraging here in the church. The men in the church should be marked by the fact that they do not call God to bring others to repentance and to to faith and confession before they themselves have reconciled that they are fully right before the Lord, having confessed all things clean. This is the idea that Paul is putting before us. I must stop there uh, because if I was to go on to verse nine, we would go on till nine o'clock tonight. So uh, I'm gonna just pray and then we can get into discussion. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, it is a myriad of riches for us to embrace, to dwell within, to eat from. Lord, I trust that this word has been nourishing to your bride and that you would sanctify us by washing us with your word. We pray that you would be with us now, even as we embrace discussion uh, and as we turn our uh, attention to more uh, loose conversation. We pray this in your name. Amen.